Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 6, The Port Key. Harry felt as though his body had barely lain down to sleep in Ron's room when he was being shaken awake by Mrs. Weasley. Time to go, Harry dear, she whispered, moving away to wake Ron. Harry felt around for his glasses, put them on, and sat up. It was still dark outside. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, for our Every Flavored Bean conversation today, we are going to be talking about what we think would make a good port key and what would make a bad port key. I have theories. Yeah, I think litter is a bad idea. Anyway, <laughs> everyone, if you want to hear this conversation, listen to it at patreon.com slash Text. And our announcement today before we get started is just that summer camp tickets are still on sale. We're really excited about gathering all of you. And you can find out more at notsorryworks.com. Vanessa, today you are telling us a story about insight. And I cannot wait to hear the insights we glean from your story. (laughs) So I grew up not kosher, not keeping kosher, but around a lot of people who kept kosher. And so discussing what kashrut was, was a big part of the conversations that we had around the dinner table. And so I knew that there was like a right way and a wrong way, morally, according to Judaism, to slaughter animals. And that you wanted a rabbi present so that it was a blessing that the animal was giving up its life for me. And that there were gestures that you could make toward the animals in order to show respect for the fact that they gave their life for you to eat, which is why you don't mix dairy and meat in Judaism. The saying is that you don't cook a baby in its mother's milk. 
But I grew up eating meat. We had hamburgers for dinner a lot. Every Friday night, we had chicken schnitzel for dinner. To this day, my favorite food is my mother's roast. I have not had it in 26 years. But if I was dying tomorrow, I am convinced it is the meal that I would want to eat today. So I, yeah, I really grew up loving eating meat and yet understanding that there was a moral universe around eating meat. And then one day in the ninth grade, I was in my ninth grade biology class and my teacher, Mr. Gross, apparently did not want to teach that day. And so he put on a documentary about deforestation and its relationship to beef. And I went home that night and I was like, mom, I cannot eat meat anymore. I found out not only are there moral complications for the animals, but you cut down trees and trees have complicated ecosystems and we need trees. And that was it. I have not eaten beef since then, even though, to be clear, I love meat. People who like don't like Beyond Burgers because they taste too much like meat, I'm like, mmm, it tastes like meat. And the reason that I tell the story about insight is because I think that maybe what an insight is, is information that changes the way we see the world so dramatically that we actually continue to see the world differently or move to take action. I always knew that eating meat was complicated and that there were sort of more and less moral ways to do that. You know, and I know a lot of our listeners are vegan and and a lot of our listeners are meat eaters and I'm really not judging meat eaters. But I always knew that for myself, it was a complicated issue. And then there was just one piece of information that sort of blew my mind and I saw the world differently and I couldn't go back to seeing the world the way that I did before. And that is my working definition of insight for today's conversation. That's a great story, Vanessa, a very insightful story, an illuminating story, really. Insight is one of those words etymologically, which is just very fun and easy. Like the etymology is in the contemporary English word. It means to see within something. And I think historically that meant to see within yourself. Like it was like an interior kind of seeing. You have an insight about yourself or you see within yourself. But just what's presumed about the idea of insight from the beginning is that something's hidden, that what is at first glance is not the whole story, right? And what's interesting about the way you tell your story is that your Judaism or your relationship to Judaism and its food culture already was telling you there's more to this story, right? Was already asking you to look behind the veil of the what we eat and what it means. And that kind of trained you to be able to see. So when other information was good, you weren't surprised that, oh, there's more to the story. I, the phrase you used in your story, which was great, was like, There was always a moral universe around food for you. So you were ready to see. You were ready to see beyond what was most obvious, to see a deeper meaning, to see a deeper insight. And yeah, it's a really great story because it was it talks about like something about yourself, but also something about seeing the world around you and looking behind what's obvious. Thank you. Matt, are you ready to recap in 30 seconds? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry wakes up and it's very early and it's very early for everyone. And and Fred and George are like, oh, it's so early. Why does that have to be so early? Why can't we apparate? And Arthur's like, only uh, certain wi- of age wizards can apparate who know how to do it. And you'll get splinched. And there's a lot of paperwork. It's as if the worst thing about the whole thing is the paperwork. And then everyone else shows up and they go to the top of the hill. And it's a long walk and it's rocky. And they they meet uh, Amos, Diggory, and Cedric. And Amos is like, Cedric's the best thing in the universe. And of course he would because he's his dad. And then they touch the old boot and then they travel to the, to the place. And they're at the Quidditch World Cup. Do you think that we should at some point have a video of us doing 
um, 30 second recaps. Because one thing I noticed today, which is probably true every time, is that my hands go up and start doing things. And then as I finish, they come down. <laughs> it's, it's like for 30 seconds, I'm conducting a small orchestra of very stupid people who are trying to tell me what was in the <laughs> chapter. And I'm like, here, tell me, tell me. And then I'm like, well, let's stop now. Are you ready, Vanessa? Count me in, Matt. Three, two, one, go. As Matt spent 15 seconds talking about, it's very early in the morning. No one wants to be going. Molly is like, Fred and George, empty your pockets. And they were like, why are you ruining everything? We were going to sell a bunch of tongue toffees at the Quidditch World Cup. They have to walk up a really steep hill in order to get to the boot in order to transport. It turns out that... um, Transportation to the Quidditch World Cup is like a really complicated thing with poor people having a much harder time than wealthy people and inequality is real. I also do things with my hands. That, see, that was, a, I feel like our 30 second recap was like, was, was like an exercise in insight where I was like panicky and surface level and you went like, you looked one level below and were like, look at the injustice issues. Look at what's going on family dynamics wise. It really is a team project, Vanessa. I mean, I think that one of the things we know about Insight, Matt, is that it comes after years and years of experience. And I'm in year seven of recapping Harry Potter. Uh, This is actually right around my seventh anniversary of reading Harry Potter as a sacred text. I started in October of 2015. I think I was thinking more about how we were working together to, to really capture oh. everything instead of how you were just far more insightful. I was than just me. taking but a okay. victory That's lap. Okay. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, Vanessa, as we often do, we choose these themes at random. And I didn't choose insight for you because I thought that chapter six would be full of illuminating things about insight. So I actually really struggled to try to find like where insight was in this chapter. Which is maybe appropriate since everything I said was about how like insights are meant to be hidden. They're meant to be behind the surface. You have to go looking for them. And just sort of metaphorically, that got me thinking about the port key, right? A port mm. key is a, an item, the purpose of which is to not be obvious. The purpose of which is to hide itself from muggles. But like it's really important that when wizarding families or wizarding travelers arrive at the place where the port key is supposed to be, They don't already have information about what it is. It's not like they're saying, oh, look for the empty cigarette carton or look for the old boot in this case. They're just told to go to the place and look for an item, which is not obvious, which one would not imagine would be the thing that could carry you to faraway places through magic, right? And so, like, what's required when they go to the top of Stoat's Head Hill is for them to look deeper, to try to see what's there and to recognize what is the thing in this place, which is more than it appears to be, right? So just like the the fact of the port key itself becomes this metaphor for for insight. And I, I don't know, I, I wonder if that's a way for us to start talking about it with this chapter and try to find some insights from, from the chapter. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the port key in that metaphor is that you do know it exists, right? right? Yeah. But I love that as one of the components of insight, Because I do think that there's an important difference between insight and epiphany, right? Epiphany is something Hmm. that sort of comes into your brain all at once and it feels big. Whereas an insight can feel like 
you have all of the information or you have a lot of the information and something happens that just puts it into perspective. Hmm. You know, my grandfather behaved in ways the whole time I knew him my whole life. And then I learned about PTSD and I was like, oh, right. That wasn't an epiphany. I wasn't like, boom, now everything is totally different about the way that I see my grandfather. But I had a name for why he behaved in the way that he did. And that felt like an insight. And I feel like the port key is like that. You know that there is something there. You know that you don't understand something, even though there's a lot of information right in front of you, but you're missing almost like a linchpin. You're missing a key to understand it more. And the port key or an insight is like that key. I mean, it's a lot like your story, right? You knew there was a moral universe around food already, which gave you vision to see the other thing which wasn't obvious, right? Which wasn't obvious at first glance. Right. You know, I'm a professor of religion, and within the study of religion, there's a lot of argument over how to define religion, Mm because it's kind of like a you know it when you see it kind of thing, but that also privileges your own assumptions if you know it when you see it. As soon as you look at any particular thing called a religion, their definitions start to, to fall apart, right? That's why scholars like me struggle to come up with a good definition. But one of my favorites that I learned in my first year of my PhD program was just kind of off the cuff. The professor was teaching the class was just said that maybe religion is just that there's more to life than meets the eye, right? Like there's, there is something more and you have to keep looking. And part of this commitment to looking is the precondition for insight. And that's also the precondition for magical travel. That's also the precondition for magic in many ways in the wizarding world. Like you have to be open and available to the fact that dragons exist and and magical creatures exist and that this old boot can transport you if you just pay attention to it and attend to it at the right time and in the right way, it can transport you miles away. Yeah. And I love that complication on insight because it's easier to have insight if you have education on the subject, right? Harry could have walked by Diagon Alley, the entrance to Diagon Alley, a hundred times. And if you weren't pointed to the entrance of Diagon Alley, like you need someone to actually point you to it in order to have the insight. And then like what you do with that information about the magical world and the thoughts that you have about it and the things that you see and you don't see are sort of up to you. But you do actually need some information to have a real insight. I could have stared at my grandfather forever and never known that there is something called post-traumatic stress disorder. I could have thought about animals forever and not known that you have to clear trees in Argentina, right? Like you actually do need some education, some information that something on this field is a port key in order to have an insight. So given this as our kind of framing metaphor, can we walk through the chapter? Because there's lots of like, there's lots of hiding in the chapter, right? There's lots of attempts to hide or things being hidden and other people noticing or not noticing, right? So the chapter opens with, well, with Harry being awakened, but then he goes and he sees Arthur like in his muggle costume, like trying to to look like an authentic muggle, right? So I'm thinking about the way you've been talking about insight, that you need some frame, you need some context. Insight doesn't just necessarily like happen upon you the way an epiphany does. There has to be some prior foundation. I imagine... Muggles walking around seeing a not customarily dressed muggle might say like, oh, this is a, just a person who has different fashion choices than me, right? <laughs> but a Better person who is aware of choices. the world. That's right. But a muggle who maybe like has a child that went to Hogwarts 
if they see Arthur walking by, they might be like, oh, I bet that's a wizard, right? Like there's a there's a a background there that allows this person to see, to have the insight as to who Arthur and his and his companions are. Yeah, I also had thoughts about the muggle clothes situation. It just really became clear in this chapter to me again how underground magical people have to live and how segregated these two societies are. Because Arthur goes to London for work every day and yet does not have a firm understanding of what how muggles dress. And you would think that just seeing them day after day after day, you would get that idea, but he doesn't see them, right? He apparates to this telephone booth and then immediately goes in. And he has to do that as quickly as possible because he dresses in a certain way that would draw attention to itself. And it just reminded me, I'm being very Jewish today, but it just reminded me of like, you know, Jews in medieval Europe who, when they went into the shtetl, into the town with the church, you had to dress a certain way in order to pass. And you wanted to, you know, move your Shabbat candles further into the house from the window, even though your some traditions say you're supposed to keep them in the window so that you don't get persecuted, right? That it really just occurred to me how secluded magical people live. I mean, even the whole Quidditch World Cup, right? Like in this right. chapter, we learn that they need to host the event, which attracts, what, 100,000 wizards, maybe more. It's too large a gathering for them to have it in a completely hidden, magically hidden place. So they need to put it in a place that is available to muggles, but with protections and barriers around it so they can't get in or won't know what they saw. Or And it's and, and in a very remote place, right? Which is also a thing that happens to folks who are marginalized. They often are pushed to the margins, to remote places, because those become the only places that they can can safely gather or gather in the way that they need to or want to. It also shows how oppressions and marginalizations overlap and intersect and build upon each other, because the fact that they have to do this in this remote place far away, and they don't have an infrastructure that easily allows all the 100,000 or so wizards to arrive there means that people with fewer resources, as you already mentioned in your third second recap, have to arrive two weeks early. It's far less convenient for them. It's harder for them, right? And so, like... They have to miss two weeks more of work, and they're already less economically advantaged. It's very upsetting. They need more camping equipment and all that stuff, right? I don't know what this costs in wizard terms, but it just, it provides insight because, like, now that we're open to seeing, we're able to see, we see, like, oh, these marginalizations start to compound. They add upon each other. Once you push one group to the side, then within that group, there are also power structures, which will further marginalize certain groups and so on and so forth. Right. And you can see that even in this, you know, in this chapter, Rowling is trying to get across. We never really talk about Rowling's intention and we really care about Rowling's intention. But I think literarily what's happening is just like, oh, the fact that this is a big event, that's what's being talked about. But you could actually get a clue into the way marginalization works on a grand scale if you just pay attention you know, touch this particular port key, it will transport you to a larger truth about the way that people set each other aside and, and push each other into into the boundaries, into the margins. Yeah. I think one more thing about this Arthur dressing and the cultural differences from muggles and wizarding folk is that Arthur asks Harry for insight on his outfit. 
Hmm. And part of that is that Arthur has probably looked at a lot of muggle magazines, right? Like he he has studied this. He loves muggles and he's done a pretty good job, right? Like golf shirt and, you know, ripped jeans. Like it sounds like a pretty good outfit other than the fact that it doesn't quite fit him, which is also fine. But he's still saying, Harry, you just intuitively know this better than I do. You have an insight from being a cultural native that I don't have. And I think that that is another thing about insight is that sometimes we know we don't have it, right? And we just like ask someone else to offer it, right? Like if you're studying a language, right, you might say something in a really formal way. Then you ask a native speaker, like, what is the casual way (laughs) that somebody would actually say this, right? What is the idiomatic way? Yeah. And sometimes you just need to know something in order to have an insight about it. Yeah, that's right. I had a Greek teacher at HDS who was great. I, I really enjoyed him as a teacher, but he was an, a native Greek speaker. And for teaching, sometimes he would just have to kind of sound things out, right? He just kind of say the words to himself in his head or read something on the board and say like, oh, wait, where does the accent go? Let me think. Well, he didn't actually know the rule. Right. It was just he had to intuit it because it was it was it was just known at that deeper level. Right. That is another thing about insight, right? Is that you don't know that you have it sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know that you have them. Yeah. If you asked Harry, like, are you an expert on how muggles dress? He'd be like, no, I don't know. What? Yep. And yet he just has this eye for it. He just grew up around it. He just knows. Yeah. So let me give another example of that. Please. From just after this in the chapter, right? Harry doesn't really pay much attention to the fact that Fred and George's pockets are bulging. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But Molly, because she has, you know, a background framework for understanding Fred and George, she is able to notice something. And then with a little bit further exploration and investigation, discovers the ton-tongue toffees uh, and finds what's hidden. Yeah. It's so interesting, though, right? She has insight into the fact that they might be trying to sneak things out. She also has insight that they're not going to be totally forthcoming when she says empty your pockets. They're not going to totally – they might, like, literally empty their pockets, but then they won't empty the cuffs of their pants and the linings of their jackets, right? right? And so she has to keep saying Accio. But the thing that she doesn't have insight into is that they're really hard workers and that their ambition is actually right in front of her, right? What she says is like, oh, a great way to spend six months making these. No wonder you didn't get any OWLs. And I understand that instinct in a parent, right? I would be really worried about my kid if instead of studying, they spent six months on YouTube watching whatever, some silly video. But what, what she's missing is that they're actually building impressive things, you know, that they're doing complicated magic. And I think it comes from a good place in her. I think she wants her kids to have stable careers. Yeah. But it, she is actually missing an insight about something that is going on right in front of her. Thank you for that insight. I hadn't thought about that part of it. I think my parental instinct was probably so close to Molly's. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You need OWLs. But you're right. I mean, the evidence is right in front of her, but her framework is in the wrong place that she can't actually see the thing, which is like, these are two super hard workers who are incredibly committed and incredibly passionate about their work like that. Truly, really creative. Really creative. I mean, like like any other kind of like really committed, passionate work, there are some risks attached to it. and, And it's fair for Molly to be wary of some of those risks. You know, they're experimenting upon themselves and so forth, right? (laughs) <laughs> there is some information here that she is not processing, maybe as much as we love Molly, that she is not processing in the most insightful way, which would be the way that you just described, which would be like, okay, they have gifts. 
how do I redirect these gifts the right way rather than I need you to have different gifts. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I totally understand the instinct of. To- yep. Totally understandable. Which is the other side of insight that I was thinking about in this dynamic, which Fred and George could absolutely have the insight into Molly that she's doing this out of fear. And that is like yeah. an inverse of love. That This is actually out of love. That she is just concerned about them and wants them to succeed. And you can have that insight and it doesn't matter. It's really annoying, <laughs> yeah, right? right? Like I sometimes right. I'll be like, oh, this person is acting out of fear and defensiveness. And I know that, but I don't care. It's annoying, right? And sometimes you can actually have the insight and somehow be unable to act on it, even though you have the information. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I feel like we're going to be bad on parents here, but I want to turn to another one of these situations. I feel like (laughs) Amos Diggory obviously (laughs) loves his son, right? So when Arthur and all the children arrive at the top of Stoneshead Hill, they find Amos Diggory and Cedric. This is the first introduction we have to Cedric. I think I have more I want to say about that with respect to insight. But for now, I just want to say, like, we're introduced to these two characters. We find out that Cedric is incredibly handsome and a talented Quidditch player. And we also find out that Amos is incredibly proud of his son. Right. So the kind of everything that was going on between Fred and George and Molly, where she was having trouble recognizing their gifts or having insight into where their gifts might lie, that is not a problem with, with Amos and Cedric. What <laughs> Cedric is gifted at is exactly what Amos most recognizes as giftedness. He's very proud of him. He wants to talk about how great he is, talk about how he was 
better at Quidditch than Harry Potter. How Harry the fell Harry off the Potter. broom, but yeah, how Harry fell off the broom and Cedric didn't, et cetera, et cetera. What he doesn't have insight in, into is how this is landing with Cedric, right? We get the sense that Cedric is embarrassed. He mutters, the text tells us. He mutters to his dad, oh, you know, that, that was an accident. Like he's, you can see that he's trying to soften the social situation, soften the awkwardness. Amos doesn't see it. He doesn't see the other people awkward. He doesn't see his son awkward. All he sees is how grand and accomplished and wonderful his boy is. I mean, Cedric has insight into the situation. He has more information. He was there, right? He knows that the Dementors were there. He saw how much Harry suffered. He saw that Harry almost died, right? Like, there's something visceral about that, right? You can explain that to someone and still they weren't there to see how terrifying something was. And I think that Cedric is also performing for multiple audiences. He wants Harry to know, I gave him all the information, (laughs) right? Like, I did not say... Ah, I beat him of my own free will, like under my yeah. own steam. I was amazing. Want to think I was bragging to my dad, right? Yeah, right. right. Whereas I feel like if Amos was doing this in front of a colleague, and Harry wasn't there, Cedric might be like, "Whatever, this means a lot to dad, and I don't care." Right? But like the fact that there are multiple audiences and he has sort of multiple stakeholders with different insights into the situation, I think, is what makes this so hard for Cedric. Yeah. And I feel like as a parent, sometimes when your kid is like, please stop, you have the insight that it's okay for to compliment them, right? I, I even feel this way with friends sometimes, right? Where it's like, yeah. oh my God, they're so, such a talented dancer. And my friend will be like, well, I'm not the most talented. And like, they have more insight into dancing than I do. But I'm like, yeah, but I have insight into the fact that you seem like a yeah. really good dancer and I want you to hear that I think that. And so I think even sometimes in these awkward situations, you both have insights to offer. And even though it's uncomfortable, it's okay. I think Amos crosses the line on that. I do not think what Amos is doing is okay, but I think he should probably take some cues. Yeah, I think when you start, when you start talking down another child, yeah. that's probably when it crossed the line. Yeah. But I think, the insight, you know, you and I both parent children. I think, I think the insight we have into Amos is like how strong that instinct is, how how easy it is to see the good in yeah. the child you love, right? And how easy it is to just talk too much about that. What goes wrong here is that it extends to like, by comparison, he, ha- he has to diminish Harry by comparison <laughs> in order to proclaim his pride for his own son. Yeah. Right. I can imagine Amos being like, this is the famous Harry Potter. Like he doesn't need, he can take it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what yeah. he doesn't have insight on is that Harry's actually in an abusive household where no one ever compliments him. That's right. Um, right. And so I, I think that it's possible that Amos just doesn't understand the power distinction that's a- right. actually at play here. Which Arthur does understand, maybe better than yeah. he ever did before, having arrived at the at the Dursley's house. And which is why right. Arthur in this scene kind of cleans it up and tries to move on to a different topic of conversation as quickly as possible, right? I mean, since we're talking about Cedric, I was I was just thinking about if we're talking about insight with respect to hiddenness, you know, those of us who have read this novel before know that Cedric is going to die, right? And so we have another insight as we read this chapter. The first time I read this chapter, I didn't know Cedric was going to die. Returning to it now again and seeing Amos's pride, his sort of overflowing pride for his son and admiration for his son gives me some insight and and makes what is going to come in this novel more poignant, more bitter, and just harder to read this chapter. It was just kind of a joke the first time I read it because Amos is this kind of overproud 
dad. But I have additional context now to see just how, how deep a wound is going to be for Amos. Yeah. Matt, as Casper started us off last week, we are going to continue with the wonderful practice of sacred imagination in which I have picked a passage for us, and I am going to ask our listeners if they can safely do so to close their eyes, and I will read you a passage from chapter six. And we are going to imagine ourselves into the scene, either as a character or as a fly on the wall, and sort of notice what we notice on a sense level. And I'm actually going to be reading right from the beginning of the chapter because I think that on a sensory level, it's really interesting. So here we go. Harry felt as though he had barely lain down to sleep in Ron's room when he was being shaken awake by Mrs. Weasley. Time to go, Harry, dear, she whispered, moving away to wake Ron. Harry felt around for his glasses, put them on, and sat up. It was still dark outside. Ron muttered indistinctly as his mother roused him. At the foot of Harry's mattress, he saw two large, disheveled shapes emerging from tangles of blankets. It's time already, said Fred groggily. They dressed in silence, too sleepy to talk, then yawning and stretching. The four of them headed downstairs into the kitchen. Mrs. Weasley was stirring the contents of a large pot on the stove while Mr. Weasley was sitting at the table checking a sheaf of large parchment tickets. He looked up as the boys entered and spread his arms so they could see his clothes more clearly. He was wearing what appeared to be a golfing sweater and a very old pair of jeans slightly too big for him and held up with a thick leather belt. What do you think, he asked anxiously. We're supposed to go incognito. Do I look like a muggle, Harry? Yeah, said Harry, smiling. Very good. So, Matt, who were you in the scene and what did you observe? I think I was a fly on the wall. I tried to put myself in the position of one of the twins. I don't know, maybe because we were talking about the twins or I was talking about the twins during the theme conversation. But it didn't work. I just was kind of in the room observing them. <laughs> And yeah. what I noticed most were sounds. Mm. So I feel like the windows were open. It's late summer. I also don't know if in southern England they have peepers, little uh -huh. little tree frogs. That, but I could uh. hear like you know like the insect or, or amphibian sounds, like the little chirpy sounds that you hear in the dead of night when it's early. Yeah. I could hear that stuff coming through the windows because I I feel like that's what it sounds like when you wake up early in summer. And then just like in the kitchen recently, my brother was visiting from Japan and he, he and his nephew were visiting and they had to take an early flight back to Japan. And so we got up, you know, dead of night, like 3.30, 4 a.m. But everybody in the house got up because they were saying goodbye to them, right? So nobody was sleeping. But it's funny how like when it's early morning, even though everyone's awake, you still whisper to each other. <laughs> like, like you're not protecting anybody because everyone's awake, but just something about, so like this whole scene in the kitchen, I just, I could hear Arthur's very low voice. I guess people still are sleeping in their house, but I could hear his very low voice and everyone's very low response. Yeah. And how in those moments you, you need know, communicate excitement and enthusiasm differently when you have to speak quietly. So it's just like, it was a lot of auditory like sensation. I was like hearing a lot of what was going on in the scene. How about you, Vanessa? Yeah. I just want to say that and whispering 
And being quiet is so interesting because to your point, right? It It's an act of caretaking. When yeah. you're being quiet, you're not usually being quiet for yourself, right? You're yeah, right. being quiet for someone else. I was hairy and just like overwhelmed on a tactile level by how kind and warm everything is, right? Yeah. Harry's never been woken up by yeah. an adult saying, Harry, dear, like not once in his life. And he's never, you know, shared a room with a group of brothers. You know, he he's in the dorm room and I know that that's a lovely community for him, but there's like a lack of self-consciousness that's really beautiful, right? Like the twins are just getting out of bed and Harry obviously feels comfortable in this house. He reaches for his glasses, knowing exactly where his glasses are are going to be. And then I, like you, you know, I was hearing a kitchen in the morning, right? Like the sound of the coffee pot, you know, you know, there's a, mm. a pot being yeah. stirred on the stove and it smells like tea and coffee and oats. And I just can imagine this is just so domestic and quiet. And for those of us who are lucky enough to have it, like a pretty typical morning, and yet for Harry, it's just so, I would imagine that it's so beautiful for him. Yeah, like he doesn't, You're. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, you're right about him never having been awakened by anybody with care, right? Like yeah. probably more than anybody at this house, he is not unhappy to wake up. He's waking right. into this cocoon, this womb of like care and support and family and fellowship. And like, that's where he always wants to be. And, you know, and just... I'm sure he's still tired like everybody else, but just to be there just feels so warm and comforting. And then, and you're right, like the, those are sounds I didn't hear, but as soon as you started to name them, they all flooded into my head, like the the kind of purring noises of breakfast foods, you know, like yeah. the way a, a coffee pot kind of sputters and, the, and how oats simmer and, and all this stuff. It, yeah, that's, that's great. I just think of this scene, I think the reason I picked this scene is because... We think about the Gryffindor common room as this safe place, and we think of the yeah. burrow as this safe place. And a lot of what happens in both of those places is actually quite chaotic. And that's yeah. because when not much happens, we don't describe it. You know, when your kid has yeah. an okay day at school, you ask them how it was, and they go, fine. And when something bad happens, that's when you hear more, right? And same with the Gryffindor common room, and same with the burrow. And it, this just felt like a domestic beautiful moment to capture the peace that Harry feels. He felt it the night before yeah. around the, you know, that, that big chaotic table, but he also feels it in this peace with the sound of summer outside the windows and, you know, the smell of oatmeal. Yeah. And how care, like keeping people safe, like it, it can come through grand acts and we see some of those mm -hmm. grand acts in the climactic moments of the series. But a lot of it in our lives and in the lives of these characters comes through just like basic acts of kindness and gentleness, gently waking somebody, tea on the kettle, or even just like, you know, Arthur looks kind of ridiculous and they all say, oh, he looks great, dad. <laughs> right? Like just little <laughs> kind comments back and forth, like the little ways you take care of each yeah. other on an everyday way that just are kind of quiet and in the background. But that background is why you feel safe in a place because the background is not threatening because the background is secure and comforting. I mean, even the fact that Molly wakes them, right? There, there are magical yep. alarm clocks. Yeah. Like she, I'm sure, yeah. but she's like, it's four in the morning. They're not going to want to wake up. Like I'm going to go yep. gently wake them myself this morning, which means that she had to wake up. She could say to Arthur, I don't need to be up at four. Yeah. 
I'm not <laughs> going. Right. But she like right. got up with them and it's just yeah. a lot of generosity. Yeah. Great scene. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me, Matt. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Paige Aaron. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Harry Potter Sacred Text team. My name is Paige Aaron, and I just listened to your episode on Book 3, Chapter 21, about anticipation. I wanted to send in a blessing in response to Matt's blessing of Hagrid, who he blessed because Hagrid loves Buckbeak so much that he's happy to know that Buckbeak is free, even though he also knows he's likely never going to see him again. I used to work with undocumented immigrant children who arrived in the U.S. alone. While working that job, I was really struck by the fact that almost every undocumented, unaccompanied child in the U.S. had someone in their home country who loved them very much and who sent them to the U.S. alone because that was their best chance for a safe and happy life. Often, because of the way our broken immigration system works, a part of helping this child to get legal status would involve their caretakers forfeiting their caretaking responsibility. The way that this system seems to conceive of this is that the adults don't care enough about the child, so the U.S. has a duty to give them some status and to provide for their welfare. But... It was always really clear to me that what these people were doing was an incredible act of love. It must be so scary and so difficult to send your child to a foreign country that speaks a different language and has a notoriously hostile immigration system, and then to get papers or a call and be asked to give up any chance of reuniting with them. 
There is a giant, broken bureaucracy telling a story that these caregivers are bad, unloving caretakers, but that narrative could not be further from the truth. So, blessings to the adults who love the children in their lives enough to send them away from bad situations and to be happy for them even though they'll never see them again. And blessings to children who have been separated from the adults who love them in this way. I just wish so much peace for anyone in that inconceivably difficult situation. And if you're someone whose life intersects with an immigrant child, with people who love them that are not in this country, blessings to you as you do your part to build a loving community around them. I mean, talk about insights, Matt, right? Like this is such a wonderful re-read of a situation that people feel as though they have a certain insight on and that they don't. And Paige Aaron, thank you so much for this reflection because you're pointing us to this thing that we know, right? That love looks like a million different things. And sometimes because of the world, love can look ugly when really there's a lot more going on. Right. I, You know, love looks like a million different things. And also, I think your work and your reflection and your voice memo page, Aaron, also tells us that when you look with love, you can see things differently. Right. And mm-hmm. I'm really grateful, not just for your message, but also really for the work you did, page Aaron. And for the fact that you did look with love at these children and rather than seeing, you know, making judgments about their caretakers, you listen to them and listen to their stories and try to see with love how you could work through a broken bureaucracy to try to give them the best care you could. It's a really tragic story and a really terrible thing. And I'm, I'm grateful for, for the work you did and for your witness through this voice memo today. Now is the time when we name those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Philippe Kalinsky, 28, the embodiment of kindness and an adventurer. Gary Hall, 82, a grandfather of many funny words. David Flowers, 30, a horticulturalist, musician, and friend of many. Pauline Theaker, 96, a grandmother, card player, and bird lover. Charlie Harrison, 87, a kite flyer and ice cream lover. Alida Shola, 87, ever graceful, calm, and loving. Richard Lawrence Humphrey, 95, a great-grandfather, Californian, and gardener. Tyler Jeffrey Baseman, 17, persistent, loving, and beloved son. Rachel Quinones, 27, a lover of all things Harry Potter. I was Rachel's camp counselor when she was a rising senior in high school, and uh, I did not know that she had died. And so I want to thank whoever submitted this name for letting me know and for helping me to remember Rachel and what a gift she was to this world this week. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? My blessing needs a little bit of context. We didn't actually end up talking about this in our conversation, which is that we find out more about apparition in this chapter. And one of the things that we find out, the reason that it is regulated and you have to be older in order to apparate, is that it's very dangerous 
And you can do something called splinch yourself, where part of your body goes to one place or stays in one place and the other part goes somewhere else. And although you can be magically healed from splinching, which we'll know from later in the books, it's very painful. And another thing that we find out in this chapter is that often when you are splinched, muggles will find your body parts and that this has happened recently. And I would like to offer a blessing for muggles who recently found the body parts of a wizard who splinched themselves. That sounds really traumatic. I walk a lot and I walk a lot in a pretty busy, like industrial part of a city. And then I also walk a lot in the woods. And you find disgusting things in both settings. You find animals that have been half eaten. You find all sorts of gross litter that I won't describe. And it's upsetting. And I cannot imagine, like it is one thing to find an animal that has been half eaten and you're like, oh, that's gross, but it's part of nature. I would be horrified if I was walking through the woods and I found an arm. And so I would just like to offer a blessing to those muggles. What about you, Matt? So I'm blessing Amos for reasons I already discussed at the end of our theme conversation. It just, you know, was really poignant. I didn't notice the first time I read this chapter. This is only the second time I've read book four. I read it with Cammie. I think Colette read it with the boys. And so I haven't seen Amos be introduced this way since I learned the fate of Cedric. And so it just, it was found it really moving and kind of sad at the end of this chapter. So I just want to bless him. Next week, Matt, we are going to be reading book four, chapter seven. Bagman and Crouch through the theme of service. Great. And I'm really excited to hear your reflections. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. We have our Pride and Prejudice pilgrimage on sale right now, and you can find out more about that at readingandwalkingwith.com. We also have our Not Sorry summer camp that's coming up, and Matt and I are going on a mini tour, and you can find out if we are coming to a city near you at harrypottersacredtext.com. And our big announcement is that we now have ad-free episodes available. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, at the top of your feed, you will see a subscribe button, or you can also subscribe to those through our Patreon. This is a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our audio engineer is Erica Huang, and our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Paige Aaron for their voicemail and for their work to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones who have been lost this week. Can I ask why you sent me this dog-ass snowman right now? Because I, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> so funny. I love it so much. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs>